Grace Family Church of Rhode Island presents Word of Hope, a sermon series with Pastor Luciano Cozzi. Welcome. The Word of Hope sermon series is a ministry of Grace Family Church of Rhode Island. It was instituted to bring sound teachings from the Word of God to as many people as possible. Our purpose is to offer you a message that is both practical and contemporary, that brings the Word of God to light in a way that makes sense in daily life. As you listen to this message, it is our hope and prayer that the Lord will bless you through it and bring you hope, comfort, and guidance. And now, Pastor Kotze. We don't have to look very far to realize and see the real presence of evil in our world. All you need to do is to just take a look at the news on any given day or better yet, look around you. Look at the people around you, look at the people in your neighborhood, look at the people in your towns. Visit a nursing home or a hospital Spend some time in an emergency room and you'll find out that the presence of evil and suffering in our world is very, very real. The question we often posed is not whether evil exists, but why God does not prevent it at this time. And you know, it's a not an easy question to answer. There are answers. But the answers are not easy because they challenge and they put into question everything that we believe. We just finished and completed a 12-week class addressing this very topic. That means 24 hours of discussion. And the people going through told me that that's barely scratching the surface. Because there is so much to it and so much it needs to be addressed and so much it needs to be discussed and there's absolutely no way there's absolutely no way that I can possibly summarize all that in a sermon today so I will not try many people prefer to avoid looking at pain and suffering but I don't think I need to tell you that we shouldn't do so especially as Christians we need to look at it straight on right in the face for whatever it is, as ugly and painful as it might be, we need to look at it. And we need to be aware of it. You have heard of the things that occurred in France. What you don't know is that my nephew was there, right next to the bar that was being assaulted. They thought there were fireworks outside. So he went to the door looking for the fireworks and they saw the man with a rifle shooting and killing. He managed to make it back inside the restaurant where he was working, shut down the restaurant, pulled down the metal gate in the front of the restaurant and told everybody to go to the back. And thankfully, because of that, they all made out alive. 
and waited until 2 a.m. when the police told him it was clear to get out. I talked to my brother just yesterday, and I was shocked and hearing some of the things he said. One of them is, well, you know, everything is back to normal. And I told him, no, it's not. And it's never going to be for the parents, the husbands, the wives, the sons, and the daughters, the cousins, the relatives, the people that lost someone. No, it is not going to be just normal or just the same. But that's my brother. He does not know how to handle pain. He does not know how to handle suffering. And so in the face of suffering, he just runs. He runs as fast as he can, as far as he can. My aunt in Italy is aging. One of them that I'm referring to is aging. She has a major case of osteoporosis and a number of other things, including shingles. And her daughter described her as being all curved up and unable to do much or move that much and so on. And so my brother, who had seen her daughter and drove by her house, in front of her house twice to go to see her daughter, told me, I just, when I heard in the condition she was, I just I did not feel like going to see her. I just don't feel like I could put up with that. And I thought, for crying out loud, if there is a time where she needs to see a family, if there is a time where you, driving in front of her house, should have stopped, I wish I could go there. I wish I could visit them. I wish I could be there. But you know what? That's the way we are. Not just my brother. When we're confronted by pain and suffering, when we're confronted by the presence of evil, we tend to hide. We tend to run. We don't want to go there. Oh, I don't feel comfortable with that. I ask people sometimes, you want to come with me to, see if, to visit some people in a nursing home? I say, oh, a nursing home? Hey, that's not a place I want to go. That's no fun. Who said it was going to be fun? And no, it's not going to be fun. It's not for fun that we do that. But we do that because there is a human being built, created in the image and likeness of God in there who is alone, abandoned even by their own family. I remember one day walking inside one of those nursing homes and finding a man in the corner in a wheelchair isolated in the corner, nobody would pay attention to him, no one, not even the nursing staff. As I was walking by, I took his hand. I shook his hand. You know what he did? He grabbed my hand, squeezed it, brought it to his face, and started crying, big tears. Why? Because one person acknowledged him as a human being. We tend to run from the face of evil. We tend to run from the face of suffering. And yet, we need to understand it. Why do we run? Because it challenges us. It's tough. It's difficult. It, it causes us to ask hard questions. But those hard questions are vital, unnecessary. Because without those questions, we make assumptions. And in those assumptions, we are wrong. But those are the questions that ultimately will draw us closer to God and to his real purpose for all of us. We need to understand what scripture teaches us about pain and suffering. And even though I cannot, 
address the, the entire topic today, like I said a moment ago. I want to share a couple of points with you, just a couple. And I would like to begin by pointing out to you that in Genesis 2, as well as in Revelation 21, 4, there is a huge message. Because in Genesis 2, in the Garden of Eden, you don't find evil, you don't find pain, you don't find suffering. It comes in the next chapter with the sinfulness of humanity. When sin enters humanity, suffering enters humanity. When sin enters humanity, evil enters humanity. But then as we read a moment ago in Revelation 21, 4, we find out that there will be no more evil, no more sin, no more suffering, no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death. None of that will ever be again. So what does that tell you? It tells me that suffering and pain and evil are only a temporary condition in this world. And I say thank God for that. Thank God for that. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, it's written, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice what this passage says. It says, first of all, that now, notice, for a little while, if necessary, we have been distressed by various trials. It's just for a little while. It won't be forever. And notice the other thing that it says also. It says that we and our faith is on trial, not God. It is not God who is on trial here. It is not the righteousness of God, nor the justice of God, nor the power of God, nor his wisdom that is on trial, but it is our faith that is on trial. The faith of all humanity. Now you might say, but wait, pain and suffering are not the result of personal sin sometimes. Are they? My wife had cancer. We're grateful, so grateful to God, so thankful that she made it, that she's a survivor of it. And we think, okay, what sin would she have committed to get that cancer? And personally, individually, none. So even though it may not be a personal sin that causes suffering and pain, suffering is always the result of sin. It is a result of a cumulative effect of sin in our world. And that brings our attention where we don't want it to be. We don't want our attention to be there because if it is, if suffering is the result of a cumulative effect of sin in the world, then we all have a part in it. All of us. Because none of us is without sin. And however little or much we may have sinned, we have contributed to the cumulative effect of sin in our world. In John chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, it's written, And his disciple asked him, 
as they were looking at the blind man, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Indeed, it was not the personal sin of his man. It was not the personal sin of his parents. In this case, only the cumulative sin or the cumulative effect of sin in the world, in this fallen and sinful world, was the cause of that blindness. But the good news is that Jesus Christ came to remove the blindness. He came to remove our blindness. He came to remove that effect of sin, the consequence. It's the penalty of sin. He came to remove it. And one day, as we read at the beginning, that removal will be complete and accomplished, fully and totally. In Luke chapter, chapter 13 and verses 1 to 5, it's written, Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans who bl whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Notice the question and the way Jesus worded it. I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 of, on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What Jesus was doing here is, was pointing out that those people upon whom the calamity occurred and happened, an evil caused to injure and damage. They were no worse sinners than anybody else. It's, there is no direct correlation between what happens to you and the sin you have committed, but there is a direct correlation between what happens in this world and the cumulative effect of sin in this world. And Jesus Christ reminded us, unless we repent, the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ of our Lord. And I thank God for the second part of that sentence, for the second part of that statement, but I cannot ignore the first either. We always concentrate on the second part because that's the gift that we appreciate, that we treasure, that we want, that we crave for, and actually we have. And so we enjoy it. And we bask in it. And please do so. But we can't ignore the first part either. The wages of sin is death. That means that sin destroys. Sin kills. We tend to dismiss sin. We tend to excuse sin. We tend to say that our sin is not nearly as bad as somebody else's sin. And funny enough, interestingly enough, it's always our sin that is not as bad as somebody else's sin. But the fact is, it is sin, and sin alone, that is the cause of all evil, of all pain, and all suffering that we experience in this life. And the hard reality that we must face, the hard reality that we don't want to listen to, the hard reality that we must speak about and yet don't want to hear, is that we all have a part in it. We all contribute to the cumulative effect of the sin in this world because we are all sinners. 
Uh, I know. We would like to blame God instead. And in our questions, we do. I mean, why is God not stopping all this? Why is God not preventing all this? Why was God not in France preventing those people from doing those things? We want to blame the blame on him. We forget that we are the ones on trial, not him. That it is our actions, not his, that cause that mess. We hear of children walking inside schools, armed to the teeth, shooting down as many people as they can and then killing themselves. And then we say, God, why didn't you prevent that? And we forget a lot of things. Well, if I get shot by somebody, I'm not guilty of that sin. That's true. You are not guilty of that sin, but sin is present in the person that did the shooting. It is sinful to kill someone. It is sinful to go and walk up to a bar and start shooting. It is sinful to go inside the school and start shooting people, isn't it? And then we say, what well, we can certainly not be blamed is some insane individual takes his parents' rifles and guns, armed to the teeth, and goes into the school and starts shooting. Can we be blamed for that? All right, brothers and sisters, let's, let's think for a second. Let's think about that. Let's really think seriously. Certainly, we are not to be blamed for his choice. Certainly, we are not to be blamed for his pulling the trigger. Certainly, we are not to be blamed for what he has chosen, decided to do in his insane, or better yet, evil heart. But think it through for a moment. Because we closed an eye when the songs that he brainwashed himself with were published. And yet, in some of those cases, exactly each single word of the song was played out as they were going inside the school and started shooting at people. They were enacting those words. Not in every case, but in some cases they did. Oh, but they're only songs. They don't hurt anyone. We closed an eye when the video games that desensitized him and trained him to kill were published despite multiple warnings of the experts. People that, by the way, like Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, who was responsible to train the special forces in the U.S. Army and the SWAT teams of the, of the American police, who went before the Congress and said, you realize that Atari was commissioned by us to develop software to desensitize our people so that when they were deployed in the field, they wouldn't hesitate to pull the trigger. And they used that material, they used that technology to put it in the video games that they're selling right now. And you are teaching your children to do the same that we teach our special forces and the SWAT teams to do. It's not my words, brothers and sisters. It is his words, because he was responsible for doing those things, for that training. But we closed an eye on that, because they're only games. They don't hurt anyone. Not even when the game gives you extra points for shooting a policeman in front of you. Just like one of the recent games does. We closed an eye when his parents fought and argued in the home, yelling at each other, I wish you were dead. I mean, after all, it was only an argument, wasn't it? It doesn't hurt anybody. It's only between them. 
but he gave him ideas. We closed an eye when he went out to the store and bought weapons produced and sold, but out of the greed of some people, despite the obvious purpose that they have, they're not weapons to hunt. They're not weapons to gather food. They're weapons to kill people. Those are the weapons that were purchased. That someone builds and makes it profusely for that purpose. Now, I understand one thing. This is not easy to hear. And I do understand that there are other aspects to that. But we also close an eye when parents spoil their children mad and make them believe that they're entitled to everything the world has to offer, so much so that they go on a date and they think they have the right to take that woman, that girl, and rape her. We close an eye because, I mean, after all, we're only trying to boost their self-esteem. And that doesn't hurt anyone, does it? Go tell the many people who left a suicidal note that were looking for that self-esteem and couldn't find it. We close an eye when the greed of a few causes the many to starve and drives them to desperation. But hey, we can argue. We can, we're certainly entitled to our own wealth. We're not the one hurting them. It's not our fault if they don't want to work or if they don't make it in the world as much as I do. We close an eye when system and social castes permeate our society so deeply that they cause us to regard other humans as not being worth as humans as we are. Oh, it happens all the time, even today. But we argue around it. We rationalize and we say it's only a culture. It's not our fault if they are not as socially acceptable as I am. We close an eye when our government calls our young sons and daughters to put their life at risk to defend us. And then we dump them to their own devices in dealing with the consequences of what they've been exposed to to help us. To the point of driving them homeless or suicidal. But of course, it's not our fault if they fail to adapt to civilian life. After all, we provided them with several hours of debriefing before we dismissed them, didn't we? And what's that going to do? But we close an eye. And we betray them. We expect them not to betray us. We expect them to serve the country and to serve all of us, to protect and defend us. And then we betray them by not following through with them and not helping them in their transitions. We close an eye when our public and private schools decide to teach our children that there is no God, that there are no absolute standards of right and wrong. And if you believe in a God, you must be psychotic, superstitious, or profoundly, deeply ignorant. Oh, we close an eye on that. Because it is science, isn't it? After all, what can I do about it? How can I argue against what they teach? After all, I'm not the one setting up the curriculum, am I? We close our eyes so much, brothers and sisters, that we blind ourselves to the presence of sin all around and sometimes in us. Somehow, what we do is never as sinful as what other people do. And yet I wonder... Because if we look at the cumulative effect of sin, then we actually contributed. Every time you and I sin, we actually contributed to that effect. It may not be as big of a sin by our standards as somebody else's. And since I haven't killed anybody, I haven't robbed anybody, I haven't raped anybody. Uh, yeah, I know I had an affair, and that doesn't do any harm. It was consensual after all, was it? 
And you think that does not contribute to the cumulative effect of sin? I know the argument. And I would agree that it's not the gun itself that kills. That is so true. I had never seen, and I was in the army too, I never seen a weapon kill someone by itself. There's always someone behind it. I know. In this sinful world, sometimes it is necessary to be behind one of those. I understand that. God himself speaks about the, the fear of the sword. He speaks about the fact that he has given authority to some people in government to exercise that right to wage the sword, to bring fear upon the people who would otherwise be so evil as to destroy and ruin everything and everyone. I understand it. But there is always someone behind that. And even though sometimes those weapons are necessary, many times they are not. They are not necessary in the streets of Providence. Have you heard of any shootings occurred in the streets? I remember talking to a young man, and that young man told me how he grew up on a street where every single night he had to duck in his bedroom because there was shooting and bullets, bullets flying around the street. And he was so afraid that one of them would enter his bedroom and kill him. How would you like to be growing up in a situation like that? Where your world, where you're supposed to be safe, your haven, your home, is in the midst of a war zone. I remember being in college, and I remember interviewing a girl that came to college from Beirut. And interviewing her in terms of what was going on in her city. And how she grew up in the midst of bombings, bullets flying all over the place, killings, retaliation. And she explained, you know, yes, it started somehow with somebody, but then it never ended. Because when you kill someone in that family, they have to kill someone in your family. And when they do that, then you have to kill someone in their family. And back and forward it goes. She said, this is not a war, it's a, a matter of vengeance that we live in. Speaking of Jesus Christ, the prophet Isaiah was inspired to write the following words in Isaiah 53. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Whose griefs? Our griefs. Our sorrows he carried, and yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. This is not the iniquity of someone or somebody else. This is not the grief and the sinfulness of someone else. This is our iniquity, our sinfulness, our sorrow, 
our pain and our suffering that he took upon himself on that cross. And it is because of that that you and I have hope. And only because of that that you and I have hope. But then something horrible happens like it did in the last few days. Something horrible happens like it has done in the months past and will happen unfortunately in the days to come because we cannot fool ourselves into thinking it will not happen again. Something horrible happens and then we start questioning, we start blaming God because of humanity's sin. Why did he not prevent it? Think about it though. Think about the true nature of that question. Why did God not prevent sin? And as you think about that question, ask yourself a corollary question, a directly related question. Where would you be if God were to stop all sin right now? Because you see, whether your sin is little or big, whether you regard your sin as major or minor, you are and I am a sinner. And if God were to stop all sin right now, we would all be wiped out. Let's think it through, and not just halfway. Many people look around themselves, they see evil caused by our sins, and conclude that there is no God. I mean, after all, there cannot be God, because what I see does not fit with who God is. That's their argument. But think it through for a second, again. Don't stop on the surface of these statements and questions. Go deeper. Dig a little deeper. It does not reconcile with who God is? Well, first of all, God is not the one that brought it about. God is not the one who caused that evil. God is not the one who generated that evil. God is not the one who made those choices. He is the one who pleaded us not to. But maybe, I don't know if you ever thought about it, it may just be that what you see around you does not reconcile with your idea of who God is. And maybe suffering challenges our theology, like it did for the friends of Job. And if you read the book of Job, please go to the end and find out where God says that they are wrong. But yet, it often results in the capitulation of the idols that we set up in our hearts and take them to be our gods. I'm not saying that God is evil. I would never say, God forbid. I'm not saying that God is the ultimate cause of evil. I would never say, God forbid that. But I'm saying if what you see around you challenges your idea of God, maybe it's your idea of God that needs to be changed. And maybe you haven't looked at God the way you should. And maybe you don't understand God the way you should because he does have a plan. He does have a reason. A true understanding of God is not challenged even by the presence of evil or suffering. Because God is far above all that. And God has given us has given us hope. He has not left us to our own devices. He has not left, to our own left us to our own intelligence in trying to sort out and figure out some of these things. He has told us what we need to hear. And yes, he also said there is so much more that he could share with us that we cannot even begin to bear or understand or handle right now.
But let me remind you a few of the things that he says. And again, please keep in mind that it took us 12 weeks to go through these questions in that class. Each week, two-hour sessions in order to tackle these questions. And yet we feel still that we could go on more. But here's a, a brief review of what God tells us. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 5, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit on the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In verse 15 of Romans 8. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Do you understand what that means? We just read that we are not walking with God. We just read that we are walking against God. We have just read that in our carnality, in the way we set our mind on the flesh, we are enemies of God, and yet He makes us His children. So that we can cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Now, God is not leaving us in our suffering, God has a plan even for that. And yes, we are not going to be in our suffering. We're going to be in his glory. But as he suffered, we need to arm ourselves with the question or with the realization that in this life, we're going to be suffering too. We're not immune from what happens in the world. We're not immune from the cumulative effect of sin in this world. None of us is. But if we go through that suffering in him, we're going to share in his glory. That's his promise. And that's what he's going to bring about. But notice what he says. We're not just his children. He did not make us just his children. He has made us his heirs. There is an inheritance waiting for you. And you don't have to jump through loops or do somersaults or do anything to receive it except for accepting it. Verse 18 of Romans 8, same chapter. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Read it again, and again, and again. Don't get tired of that, ever. And let it sink in within you. Because it tells us that all the sufferings that you and I are exposed to, all the sufferings of this world, all the suffering that is derived from the cumulative effect of sin in this humanity, all of it put together, yes, including Hiroshima, Nagasaki, the concentration camps, the slaughter, not just the ones of Hitler, the, the genocide that was caused not just by Hitler, but also by the Tsars, by Mao Zedong, by a bunch of other people that killed even more people than Hitler did. All of that put together, 
terrorist acts, everything. You accumulate it, you put it all together, and this passage says, this statement, this promise from God Almighty says that all of the suffering of our present time does not even begin to compare with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. To you. For the anxious longing, verse 19, for the anxious longing of the creation wait, waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. The anxious longing of who? Of what? Read it again and again and again. The anxious longing of the creation. What is the creation? What did God create? And the answer is all things. Do you realize what that encompasses? Do you realize what that means? All things that have ever been made and created are included in here. And the, the, the anxious longing of all that God created waits eagerly for the revealing of who? Of you. Tell me that's not important. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. What hope? In hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This creation will change. But how will it change? Read it again and again. Now let it sink in. It will be set free from its slavery to corruption. You look at the beauty of this creation. You look at the awesomeness of this creation, and it's here defined as corruption. God says, I have something much better in mind than this. And I'm not just going to be the only one bringing it about. Because it says, we'll be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Your freedom and your glory will change creation. You will be with God as he makes all things new. Think about that. For we know, verse 22, that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also, we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan with, within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Yes, we groan as well. But that groaning and that suffering, that pangs, those pangs that we experience right now will not be forever. And God has a plan for it all. Verse 28, same chapter. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. If you're hearing him, if you're hearing his words, if you're hearing me today, it means you are being called. God will not make the decision for you. But God invites you to make the right decision, to accept his gift. And all things work together for good then. Verse 31, same chapter. What then shall we say to these things? If God is with us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for, all, for us all, 
how will he not also with him freely give us some things? No, it doesn't say that. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns when Christ Jesus is he who died? Yes, rather than he who was raised. Who is at right hand of God, who also intercedes for us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? Can that bullet separate us from the love of God? Can the sword separate us from the love of God? And the answer is, justice is written, for your sake we are put, being put to death all day long. We were considered a sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, not outside of them, not running away from them, not escaping them, but in all things, things, in all these things, even in them, even as we go through these trials, even as we go through all this mess that this world throws at us, we overwhelmingly conquered through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing. And brothers and sisters, it doesn't end here. It cannot. Because even so, it wouldn't be enough. So my final comment for today is very simple, and yet think about it because it's profound. Most people misunderstand all of this because they try to balance, just like the friends of Job did, they try to balance things in the here and now. They try to take all the evil in the world and the good that could come from that, and they try to balance it in this life. And the answer is, it will never balance in this life. But Scripture does not fool you into thinking that it would. Hebrews 11 is a long list of faithful people, all of them dying before they received the promise that they were looking for. But it was accounted to them as faith. And they will receive those promises. And they will receive their reward. But you can't balance things in this life, in the here and now. Because what God has in store for you, it doesn't just affect you. It doesn't just affect your life and your family and your house and your car and your money and your bank account and your clothing and whatever else you put your heart into. What God has in store for you affects all creation and all things that he has made and created are eagerly waiting for you to be manifested in the glory of Jesus Christ as a child of God. That's so big, so humongous, that you can only begin to understand it when you put it in a backdrop of eternity and infinity. And the last time I checked, we don't have eternity and infinity in this life. We need to graduate into it. And that's where it all is going to make sense and pan out. In fact, even then, even then, brothers and sisters, it will not balance out. 
Because Scripture says that all of the suffering of the present age won't even begin to compare with the glory that God is going to be revealing in you. So no, it won't balance out. It won't be equal. It will be so overwhelming that you won't even have a remembering or a memory of the things that were past and the things that were before because of how absorbed you are in the glory that God is going to be revealing in you. Revelation 21.4. We read it before. We started with it. We're going to be ending with it. He will wipe out. So here you are. God is with man. We are with him. We're all sitting with him on his throne. We're participating in him making all things new. This time actually glorious. I don't know. It's his words, not my words. I cannot fathom how the creation could be more beautiful than it is, more awesome than it is. But he calls this decay, and he says, we're going to make it glorious. So I trust his word, and they're going to say, Lord, I have no idea what that glorious means. But boy, if this, that I am so amazed by, is decay, I can't even begin to imagine what that glorious is going to be. But it's going to be super, mega, hyper, whatever, awesome. And there are no words. We need to coin new words to describe that. And at that time, notice what will happen. He will wipe away every tear. Notice what it says. He will wipe away every tear. Not just future tears. Past tears will be wiped away. The only tears you can wipe away are the ones you shed. You cannot wipe away the tears you haven't shed yet. So in order to wipe away those tears, it means you have been cried. And all the pain of the past, all the pain you've gone through, all the pain you have experienced, all the tears you've shed, they will be wiped away. By what? By the glory of God that he's going to be revealing in you. And the joy of participating in him, with him in making all things glorious and beautiful. And there will be no longer any death. Why? Because there will be no longer any sin to cause that death. Just as we were driving here today, I was thinking with my wife, we were talking in the car and says, I cannot even begin to imagine what this world would be like if it was no sin at all. And don't dismiss it very quickly. Think it deeply. Don't just think of the big sins. Think of the small sins as well. No greed, no selfishness. If everyone in this world, instead of being a taker, was a giver, there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain because the first things have passed away. Amen.